0: in ranching weather is one variable that's just part of the business but what if you knew when the next major drought was going to happen would it help you manage better
1: based on those historical trends and so um, that is something yeah. that it, that I've always taken to heart.
0: And that- meteorologist Don Day joins me for an in-depth look at understanding weather cycles, what modern weather casting and models are missing, and a long-term outlook for weather throughout the winter and spring of 2022. On this episode of the Working Ranch Radio Show. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm your host, Justin Mills, and we do thank you for joining us here for our program today. As You can find us right here every Saturday at 12 noon Eastern on Rural Radio, Channel 147, Sirius XM. We are glad that you are here with us today. By the way, as well, as I've always tried to remind folks as you're listening, if this is your first time, you can also catch the show via about any podcast provider out there and it is a good way to go back and listen to the show again or also share it if you'd like to and we'd appreciate that if you did that as well but again thank you for joining us on our program this week well here is what we have in store for our program uh as you have if you are a regular listener then you would hear meteorologist don day in our last segment of all of our shows give us kind of an extended weather outlook well we have a bonus don day feature today because he is going to be our featured guest, but we're going to be going in depth on weather, Uh, a lot of things that we're going to cover, and I think there's going to be some very useful information. As I said in the opening, what if we could predict when our next major drought is going to happen? Would it help you manage differently? and there's just some information there that I think will be very relevant to us in the ag industry. Weather is so important. Uh, I think there's uh, definitely two variables that we never quite are sure where they're at. One is the prices and one is weather. And so today's look at weather is is a way that maybe we can sort of mitigate that variability that we see with weather and helping us to be better managers. So I'm excited to have Don joining us later in our segment uh, or later in our program, I should say, to give us a little bit more of an in-depth look at our weather also the captain tim O'Byrne will be by in just a moment for this week's edition of tim's two cents and coming up in our next segment will be this week's breed spotlight featuring the Gelvy balancer breed and the galvy american galvia association Jana jensen who ranches in the sand hills of nebraska with her husband and her family there will be giving us a look into their operation and the use of Gelvy breeding in their commercial program. Well, some of you probably know, if you're regular listeners, that the Working Ranch Radio Show is a production of Working Ranch Magazine. And just a couple things that I wanted to uh, bring up in regards to that, and that's something that we have been promoting quite a bit here on the show, and that's the Working Ranch Expo that's going to be held December 8th, 9th, and 10th in Las Vegas during the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo. The uh, WNFR is headed back to Las Vegas this year. I will be there Everyone from Working Ranch Magazine will be there as well. It's going to be a three-day show. It, easy for you to find. We're going to be right down there uh, near Cowboy Christmas. And if you'd like to find out more information on this year's Working Ranch Expo, we're already working on what speakers we're going to have in there and some of the details that are affiliated with that show. If you'd like to find out more, you can go to the website at WorkingRanch.com. Expo.com. Also, the next issue is coming your way, and if you are not a subscriber to Working Ranch Magazine, one way that you can do that is by going to the website at workingranchmag.com, and there's information there of ways that you can get uh, subscribed to the Working Ranch Magazine. And speaking of that, let's check in now with the captain, Tim O'Byrne, publisher and editor of Working Ranch Magazine, to give us a little bit of a sneak peek about what's coming up in the next issue of Working Ranch magazine.
2: Hey Justin, hey Working Ranch Radio Land listeners. Your September October issue of Working Ranch magazine should be in your mailbox here pretty quick. And I want to turn your attention to page 14. It's my call, I'm topping out. This issue I asked Steve Wooten, he's the president of the Colorado Cattlemen's Association. I asked him to pen a guest column for us to kind of help us better understand how they responded as a as a team to this pause initiative uh, a while back here. It's uh, I consider it to be one of the nastiest things I've ever seen in this industry. And um, he did a great job of it. Thank you so much, Steve. Uh, It's titled Colorado Was Better with Beef and Even Better Without Initiative 16. Check it out on page 14. He very eloquently and and humbly um, and insightfully explained their journey through these dark days. And I'll tell you what, folks, they ain't over yet. These people are not going to stop. You've got to read this column so that we can understand exactly how this all works and what we can do to commit to a united front against this type of thing popping up all over the place, and it will. It's coming to your hometown, and we need to know how to handle it. We're going to do it together. Read it, page 14, September-October issue in your mailbox soon. Back to you, Justin.
0: Ah uh, Yes. Thanks, Captain. Definitely. It was a very hot topic just a few months ago, but it is not going away. And like the captain said, if you do not think that these topics or these issues that are targeting the ranching industry or agriculture in general is not relevant to you, then uh, I don't know what to tell you other than. Uh, pay attention to that uh, article coming out because I think there'll be some very good information in the next issue of Working Ranch Magazine. Well, before we go too far, let's say a thank you to our sponsors of the Working Ranch Radio Show, the American Simmental Association. You know, there was a survey done that showed the growth in the different breeds of bulls sourced by commercial producers between the years of 2014 and 2020. And did you know, that the largest growth of bull breed type during that time was bulls with sim genetics. Heterosis works, which is why with Simmental, it's more per head, period. Find out more at Simmental.org. Performance beef, easy to use. Cattle management software. Find performance beef online to request a demo. And Gelve Balancer, the smart, reliable, and profitable choice. For more information, go to Gelve.org, which leads us into our breed spotlight. Stay with us. Coming up next, Jana Jensen out of western Nebraska joins us to talk about how they are using Gelve in their breeding program and how they fit their low-input model of ranching. Then later in the show, meteorologist Don Day joins us for an extended, in-depth conversation on weather that you will find extremely useful. Don't go away. You're listening to The Working Ranch Radio Show. For commercial cow calf producers, crossbreeding with Galve and Balancer is the smart, reliable, and profitable choice. Galve and Balancer females offer maternal superiority through increased fertility, greater longevity, and more pounds of calf weaned per cow exposed. In the feed yard, Balancer cattle can offer increased performance, improve feed efficiency, and have excellent carcass merit. Balancers add the pounds, make the grade, and deliver the value. Galve and Balancer, the smart, reliable, and profitable choice. For more information, go to Galvate.org. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm your host Justin Mills. As we turn now towards our breed spotlight for our program this week, and the spotlight falls onto the Gelvie and Balancer, the American Gelvie Association. And joining me now is Miss Jana Jensen, who is a commercial cattle rancher out of the Sand Hills of Nebraska. Jana, thanks for joining us here on our program. But I know your family's ranch, the the Palace Ranch, has a long history with the Gelvie breed, and before. we get into some other details, give us a a little bit of a history of how your family uh, came to utilize the Gelby breed in your cattle ranching operation there in Nebraska.
3: Sure. Good morning, Justin. Uh, The Gelby breed was introduced to us by Phil Vandervoort back when the semen first came across in, I think it was 72 or 73. We had the cows and Phil had the semen and we made a, a a partnership agreement with Phil that he would get the heifer calves and we would get the steers.
0: Jen, I want to go right into into your operation because you're a commercial cattle ranch operation in the sand hills in Nebraska and one of the things that you pointed out to to me was the fact that you are a low input operation and you have found the value in these Gelvy cattle to to basically help you become a low input operator and help you in your process in that vein.
3: Yes, we, um, we are strictly located in the, the western part of the state, it, which is in the Sandhills region, no cultivated ground, so we, you know, we convert grass to beef, and we do that through a low-input operation where our cows graze, you know, almost 365 days of the year. When the snow flies in the winter, we do supplement with cake and hay, uh, but for the most part, our cows just graze the good old Sandhills and, and make beef.
0: Over the years, you guys have been in a purebred, now you're in a commercial. Explain how that went, but at, at the same time, how you were able to utilize the breeding in, the, in the, what you were finding with the Galvey breed and how you utilize that to maximize your operation.
3: Sure. So the Galvey breed for us really, really provides a maternal side that allows us to keep our replacement heifers and then still market really nice deer calves in the fall. Um, it's essential to us that we breed our own replacements and we keep those genetics in the herd and we're very careful about uh, selecting our bulls and keeping a moderate-sized frame cow that has a fantastic udder and can get around in the hills um Gelby has just provided those genetics for us year after year after year. and and you know we started out as as crossbred breeders with the gelvies and then went into the purebred side, and now we're back to just strictly commercial, but they've provided that the genetics that we need to do, just like I said, keep our replacements and and provide us with that that steer cast that feeds out well that is really sought after by the feeders.
0: What do you think are some misconceptions that you think folks have about the Gelvy breed?
3: I think early on the Galvee breed, um, you know, they had a birth weight issue for a little bit. Um, that's pretty well been taken care of. And I think people think Galvee just is a big animal. And I think we've proven that we can moderate them and, and provide a size that works for us. We try to hit that 1,250-pound cow works well in the sandhills and um with the right genetic cross with galvy and angus we've been able to successfully produce the kind of cow we want that works in our environment
0: Mm-hmm. so Jana, what is that cow there that fits your environment that you feel are the attributes that you're finding useful in that Gelvy cow
3: sure so when you look at the galvy cow you just think maternal um but you also have to remember that she just provides great fertility and longevity. You know, our cows, we cull really hard on our cows and expect them to have good legs and good udders for a long time. And you just find that with the Gelvy cow.
0: Jana, before we go, the final question I have would be, if you had to just highlight a couple things that really stand out in your mind of the attributes that the Gelvy breed has brought to your commercial ranch there in Nebraska, what would those things be?
3: for us it was the maternal side um the cow just produced a, a you know if you don't have a good cow you're not going to have a good herd mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the gelvy really provided that for us but at the same time she also produced a steer calf that would just do fantastic on the uh, in you know on the feeder side and so um you know crossed with the right angus genetics it's just it's just been a really good package for us
0: all right. Well, Jana, I want to thank you for joining us here on the Working Ranch Radio Show to talk about the, the Gelvey breeding and the Gelvey Balancer and, and the influence and the impact it's had on your ranching operation there in the Sand Hills of Nebraska.
3: Thanks, Justin.
0: That's Jana Jensen with the Paulus Ranch out of Western Nebraska joining us for this week's Breed Spotlight as we focus on the Gelvey and Balancer breed. By the way, if you'd like to find out more information, you can go to their website at gelvey.com. Org. We'll stay with us. Coming up next, meteorologist Don Day joins us as we spend the rest of our program talking weather. Everything from how to predict the next major drought to what is modern weather forecasting and models missing, and then later on a long-term look at our weather for the winter and the spring of 2022. We'll be back with more. You're listening to the Working Ranch Radio Show on Rural Radio Channel 147 Sirius XM. How do you manage data for your cattle business? Stop relying on pen and paper or complicated programs. Get real-time access from anywhere with Performance Beef update rations generate real-time closeout reports record health data at the chute, in the pen or pasture or analyze performance trends all in one place with ease your feed financial and health information is integrated in one easy to use platform accessible from your computer smartphone or tablet find performance beef online to learn more and request a demo Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm your host, Justin Mills. And if you are a regular listener to our program, then you're going to be very familiar with our featured guest today on our topic, which is an in-depth look at weather, as meteorologist Don Day will be joining me in just a moment. Now, to give you a little information about him, Don is a meteorologist out of Cheyenne, Wyoming, and does weather forecasting uh, across the country and for a lot of different aspects as well and i've known don for several years i've heard him talk at uh, different ag uh, uh, conventions or or bankers conventions and various things of that nature and definitely giving a very unique twist or very maybe it's practical is the is the better terminology i should use than unique it's very practical useful information about weather and so today as we look at that one of the things that i wanted to bring him on for was because i believe there are some things that if we can essentially understand some of the basic elements about weather and some of the terminologies that we hear often and the weather phenomena that uh, impact our weather, such as La Nina and El Nino, those kinds of things. If we can understand those better, it would maybe help us to become better managers within our ranching operations. We all know that weather is a variable that we all have to deal with and manage around. It's been that way and it's going to continue to be that way. However, If there are ways by us being a little bit more educated about weather that can help us mitigate that variable just a little bit, then it might help us. So joining me today on our program is meteorologist Don Day. Don, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it.
0: So before we start and, and and we look at uh, some of the questions I've got for you, I think it'd be interesting for you from a meteorologist standpoint to share with our listeners kind of how you viewed the last, the last year. If you were to kind of recap this last year and weather, what you saw and how that came about in light of, you know, how that has looked in other history and our history patterns of weather. So to give us a recap of the last year's weather across the U.S. and Canada, From a meteorologist's perspective, what does that look like?
1: Well, it's been really quite interesting from from a meteorologist's perspective. If we go back to uh, the last 24 to 30 months or so, the last couple of years, and this would take us back into 2019, what's been really interesting is we saw in 2019 one of the wettest years across the lower 48 in a long time to where if you were to look at the drought monitor in the middle of 2019, you could actually find almost nowhere in the lower 48 States that was in drought status. Uh, and you don't see that very often. And so you fast forward, we go, we, we see that in 2019. We also have uh, some flooding, uh, in parts of the Northwestern Corn Belt. Uh, the, the Sierra Nevada of California had near record snowfall. In fact, uh, it may seem like ancient history, but in 2019, the Oroville Dam in California had to release water because they had too much water going into the dam mm-hmm. and they let it go out into the ocean. And now that same reservoir, last I saw, is about 30 percent of capacity or even less than that. Mm-hmm. So the the change from a wet 2019 to what we saw in 2020 and continuing in the 2021 is a rapid shift from that wet pattern to a much drier pattern, especially across the central and western areas of the United States. So, uh, we went from almost no drought anywhere to a large percent of the United States uh, that was under a, a stronger, severe drought
0: situation. Mm-hmm. I know you look a lot, and, and whenever I've heard you talk, you you use history a lot to give us some indication of what we're going to be seeing as we go forward that drastic change that we saw from 2019 to 2020 and now 21 is that common
1: well yeah it's interesting because y- you talk about perspective and historical perspective and un- unfortunately that is very much lacking in not only the in the field of meteorology but in the field of climate as well which is we we tend to base our weather perspectives on what has just happened or what is happening and sometimes it takes uh, it takes a little bit of work but it's very useful to go back and say all right well what are we observing now and have we observed something similar in the past so let's take a historical perspective so mm-hmm. it, it's just human nature you know if you have a, a a drought or if you have a flood or if you have a hurricane it's very easy to 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 blame that event or what happened on current events. And then if you go back and look historically, you find out, well, wait a minute. Now we've seen patterns like this before. And when we've seen patterns like this before, number one, find out when they occurred. And number two, find out if there's patterns that are similar to what we're experiencing now. So that's one thing that I've learned Mm -hmm. uh, is is making sure that let's put things in a historical perspective weather-wise because we're so focused on the future because in the weather business, everybody doesn't want to know what happened last week. Right. (laughs) So, you know, I was, somebody was joking with me, said, you know, Don, you are right about the past weather a hundred (laughs) percent of the time. How do you do it? And it's just like, well, that's correct. But the thing is, is we're so focused on what's going to happen tomorrow. What's going to happen in the next six months, what's going to happen in the next two years that sometimes by only looking forward and not looking backward, we lose something. And that is that perspective that maybe we could learn from the past. Mm-hmm. And so in, in the last 10 years or so, I've really started to apply that. And, and actually, it's not new. It's called analog forecasting. And it's actually a, a pretty old style of weather forecasting that kind of lost uh, favor because of all of our computer modeling, yeah. uh, we've gone so far, and we have such advanced computer modeling. We say, "Well, you know, these models are so sophisticated. We've we've learned so much. We don't really know. We don't really need to know what's happened in the past because this model is going to do so well predicting the future." Well, that really hasn't panned out yet. Um, so, to go back to your original question is is do we have a sor- historical precedent for this? And we actually really do. In fact. Um, I'm going to bring up the number 10, 11, and 12. I'm going to bring up those numbers quite a bit here in our conversation. But when we go back and we look at the the drastic change from being wet to getting dry on a large regional scale, you know, continental scale, really, uh, all we had to do is go back to 2011 and 2012. So, what were the similarities to 2011 and 2012 to 2020 and 2021? Most importantly, we saw that the, the, the Pacific Ocean uh, near the equator, we call it the subtropics, uh, namely right along the equator there from near South America to near north of Australia. We went into, in 2011 and 2012, a very strong La Nina. La Nina is when the sea surface temperatures near the equator turn colder. And we saw... A very uh, moist pattern across the lower 48 states in 2009 into early 2010, 2011 and 2012, especially 2012, was one of the warmest summers on record and one of the driest across the lower 48 states, but especially the central and western United States. So we saw that in 2011 and 2012, well, here we go in 2020 and 2021, mm-hmm. we're in the Pacific and we saw the strong formation of La Nina in the spring of 2020 that has continued here all the way through 2021. Now it's gone through different strength phases. It's been weaker, it's been stronger, but it appears as though uh, it's going to be gaining strength as we go into the last months of 2021 into the first month or two of the new year. And that is exactly what happened in 2011 and 2012. And it's a very similar pattern if we were to compare the sea surface conditions then to what they are like now. Mm -hmm. Superimposed on top of that, Justin, is I'm going to throw another wrinkle into this, and that is talking about the solar cycles. When I talk about solar cycles, I talk about whether the sun is active, which means it's producing a lot of sunspots strong differences in magnetism across the surface of the sun. That would be what we call a solar maximum. Solar minimums are when you have very few or no sunspots, and that's a solar minimum. And, you know, we could do a two-hour program on, on, on solar activity mm-hmm. and sunspots and everything else. But the key thing to remember is, is that when we go into solar minimums, we tend to see that the La Niñas tend to be stronger than when they happen during the middle of a solar cycle. So the thing to remember is we we have La Niña's when the Pacific is cold and we have El Niños when the Pacific is warm all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, They will vary in the amount of time that they occur and the length that they occur. But one thing we've noticed is that when we go through these solar cycles, which are about 11 years,
3: Mm -hmm.
1: 11 years from the minimum to the maximum, and then it cycles through again, we have noticed that when you go through the solar minimum, which just occurred at the beginning of 2020, you tend to have very robust La Niñas when the Pacific is cold. And you know, when the last time that happened, 2010 to 2012. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so we're we're seeing a 10-year repeating cycle. Mm-hmm. And so, listeners might say, "Well, you know, if." If the Pacific is cold, shouldn't that mean it should be more stormy and wet? Well, this is where it kind of gets a, a little bit confusing. But uh, I think a good analogy is to, to treat the Pacific Ocean as, as like a weather engine. So when the, when the Pacific's waters near the, the equator are a little bit cooler, it's, it's like when you well, want to take a, a hot shower and you go into your bathroom you turn on the hot water you let it run so it's nice and hot when you get in the shower and what happens when you go into the bathroom all the windows yep, are steamed all, up mm-hmm. and all all the mirrors are steamed up so when the when the pacific equatorial waters are warmer during an el nino there's more water going into the air okay when those waters are colder during a la nina you have less water vapor going into the air. And since the prevailing winds are from west yeah. to east in the North America and also South America, you have less water available to make rain and make snow and make clouds during La Niña's. Now, there's other things that happen that impact it as well. It's not quite that simple, but the changes in these water temperatures alter the course of the jet stream. Mm -hmm. And during La Ninas, the jet stream tends to go more north. It tends to be faster, so storms don't linger as long, while El Ninos tend to produce slower-moving storms that track further south. So when we superimpose these water temperature cycles, namely in the Pacific, and we match it up with solar maximums and minimums, we find that the La Ninas during minimums are stronger and more likely to produce drought in the central and western United States and parts of Canada. When you have a solar maximum, the El Ninos tend to be more intense and you tend to have better periods of precipitation because the El Nino helps generate more water vapor in the air. Now, I, I've i simplified it quite a bit. There are a lot of other moving parts, but what we have noticed is this the cycle of trend. And for anybody in the central and Western United States, all they got to do is go back the last three droughts mm-hmm. or dry periods, which is the one we're in now, 2011 and 2012, and then the late nineties and early two thousands. And for those last three drought cycles, and I could go back further in time and highlight other ones, but for those last three drought cycles in the West, they've occurred during solar minimums and very strong la niñas. Mm-hmm. So it, It shouldn't have been a surprise for folks who watch these these ocean cycle and solar trends that the western and central United States was most likely going to hit a dry skid as we as we go through these bottoms and these peaks of the solar maximums and minimums. Yeah,
0: we're going to take a break here because what we just talked about now is something that why did we know about this before? We're going to talk about it with meteorologist Donde when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show. Starting off in the right direction is essential to gaining an advantage later when you go to market your calves. And I have proof that the right direction is with Sim Angus sired calves. A 2020 study by K-State showed that Sim Angus sired steer calves earn more at sale time than all other breed identified sire groups with at least 50 lots represented on superior livestock's 2020 summer sales the proof's right there for low risk high potential calves with earning potential be confident that sim genetics will give you more per head period stand strong simmental Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm your host, Justin Mills, and my guest today is meteorologist Don Day as we're taking an in-depth look at weather. And, Don, right before the break, you were talking about solar minimums happening during a la and how we're seeing that on a very 10 on a basically a 10 to 11 year cycle and and my thought was when i heard that the very first time was why did we know about this sooner you know in agriculture there's variables there's two major variables that affect us in agriculture it's the price of our commodities and the weather and and to me it's almost like if it the, here's some information right here that can give us some predictability of what we could be incurring in the next in, a, in the next one to two to three years out.
1: Exactly right. And the question is a good question. Well, why haven't I heard about this? You know, and that's that's a very good question. Well, first of all, um, we have not actually been studying these ocean cycles for as long as maybe we think we have. Uh, due to new satellite technology, better sensing equipment, um, we have been able in the last, really the last 20 to 30 years, have been able to identify these cycles a little bit better. And, you know, a really quick backstory about, you know, how some of these things were discovered, it all goes back to fish, Um there was a, a student working on their master's degree in the Pacific Northwest. I forget what university. And they noticed while working on their, their master's thesis that the salmon in the Pacific Northwest were taking different routes and behaving differently when they did their their spawning based on what the Pacific temperatures were, where, where the, the, the temperature differences were in the water. And by studying the fish, they ended up finding out that there are these Pacific oscillations and oscillations and temperatures and currents. And then you superimpose that on observed weather. It was kind of an aha moment. It took a fish biologist Mm -hmm. to figure out a weather phenomenon. (laughs) (laughs) And the whole term of El Nino and La Nina comes from South America. So off the coast of Chile, Mm-hmm. Anchovy fishermen, So remember this next time you have an anchovy okay. pizza, yeah. is, is that, is that anchovy fishermen noticed off the coast of Chile that during the time when the water was getting warmer off the coast of Chile, it tended to happen around Christmas. So Nino, El Nino means the child, mm-hmm. the Christ child. So, so again, this goes back to fish. So fishermen were observing that the fish were behaving differently based on water temperature, and it really wasn't only until about 30 years ago that a lot of these things were discovered. So, so that's one reason we're learning these mm-hmm. things. Number two, another reason is, unfortunately, as I as I said earlier, we are so um, we are so uh, invested in using weather modeling to make predictions. Mm-hmm we have ignored historical precedent and that has dominated, I'm afraid to say the academic and what I also call the operational side of meteorology. Operational meteorology means people like myself who make forecasts. And then the academic side of things, they are more easily distracted by things like greenhouse gases and other things that affect the climate as opposed to maybe we should be paying more attention to these solar cycles and these ocean circulations. So it's like any science justin mm-hmm. this, and this is just not this is true if, whether you're a physicist, an astronomer, a physicist, a biologist, there are certain things that go into vogue and go out of vogue over time, you know, generationally speaking. and unfortunately the, the, we' we're, we're at a point now to where let's forget about the past. And not really utilize what we've learned in the past because the computer models will tell us everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, th- that's my personal opinion, yes. but I see it all the time. So, that's another reason why we don't hear about it because it is not in the best interest of people to say the oceans and the sun yeah. play the larger role in our climate as compared to other things. Mm-hmm. And so, it's just, and so what you have to do people like myself is I'm just, I'm just curious and I, and I tend to be skeptical on everything. (laughs) So when I hear a claim that a certain weather event was caused by X, Y, or Z, and it's never been seen before, my curiosity goes to, well, you know what? I bet we've seen this before. And sure enough, I have yet to find a situation that hasn't happened before Mm -hmm. historically somewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. So, that's kind of where that comes from. So the best thing that folks can do is I tell folks all the time, be curious, do your own research, and you're going to find out that as you study these things, you're going to be more and more intrigued by the patterns you see. And, and, I, and I had a, a weather mentor, a meteorology professor, who, who, who basically said, watch patterns in the weather because they repeat themselves. They're never repeating themselves exactly. Yeah but understand patterns and be able to recognize patterns because once you do that, you can anticipate the next weather pattern based on those historical trends. And so um, that is something yeah. that, that I've always taken to heart and that's really helped me uh, be able to identify these things. And, and I will tell you, when I first heard about solar activity and the weather, I was skeptical. I um, didn't believe that there was going to be much of an influence from, from solar activity, but there was a very interesting article that I had read about, uh, I, I believe it was a statistician, uh, in Canada that correlated the prices of wheat with solar activity and the connections were remarkable, Mm -hmm. which is the prices of wheat seemed to be connected to the solar cycles, because obviously if the wheat production was down, wheat prices went up. Mm -hmm. Wheat production tended to go down during solar minimums or near solar minimums, not exactly at them, but near them. I read that paper and I said, maybe they're onto something here. And, and so you can start and be as skeptical as you want about anything, which is great. That's the way you should be. And if you are go out and do your own research because we have the ability now to do that more than
0: ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think uh, the one thing that caught my ear when you said it a little bit ago was just understanding the patterns i think that's i think that's something that for us in agriculture we can if we can start to see that that will help us in our management decisions as we as we look uh, at, at going forward i want to ask you one other one thing here and, and kind of hit this quickly you keep talking about the models and i've heard you a lot of times in your forecast refer to the u.s model the canadian model and the european model and a lot of times they differ or they're similar one two are similar than one um, I guess give explain those real quick and uh, how those are working because uh, as you had just talked about we're relying on these models now for a lot of our forecasting so explain those models.
1: Yes, that's a that's a great question um, because it can get really really confusing. A weather model, simply put, is is made from very very highly advanced computer programs that will take. The current weather that's observed all around the globe, and when I mean current weather, the temperature, the humidity, the pressure, uh, soil moisture, uh, sea surface temperatures, where the ice is, where the ground's wet, where it's dry, and and all of this is gathered by information gathered at airports also gathered and most importantly by the weather balloons that go up around the world twice a day over 450 locations in the world watch weather balloons and all of that data gets fed into these highly advanced computer programs and then what they do is they say based on the law of physics thermodynamics chemistry a lot of a lot of these uh, laws of how gases work and the way water vapor works when you heat it cool it so these go into some very complicated equations that it takes a computer to generate and what the computer then does is it takes all that weather balloon information goes into the computer the computer says all right based on what you told me in the next six hours i'll just i'll just say i'm just going to pick des moines iowa Mm -hmm. des moines iowa in the next six hours will have a temperature of 86 degrees and a wind from the west of 10 miles an hour and a humidity of 70%. And it will do that for locations all over the world. So what the model then has to do is say, okay, based on my forecast for the next six hours, I need to make a forecast for the next six hours. So this is where you have a problem with weather modeling is since you're using one set of original data, Every time you go forward in time, you're actually using forecasted data to make the next forecast. Mm. So what happens is over time, the modeling gets corrupted because you're basing a forecast on a forecast instead of basing a forecast on reality. Mm -hmm. So unless we find a way to constantly monitor the Earth's weather real time, and have computers models running at the same time, we're always going to be handicapped and these models are going to be a good tool, but they're not going to be able to tell us exactly what's going to happen.
0: Have you noticed one is better than the other one uh, with the, between the three U S Canadian or European?
1: Yeah. um, And a lot of people say, well, why should the models disagree? Why, why are they different? Well, I will tell you that the European model, in my experience, does tend to be over time more accurate than the U.S. models. Now, why is that? Well, we could talk about how the models handle the terrain and how they handle the Himalayas and the Rockies and the oceans. But I will tell you that the European models were developed after the American models. So the American models were really kind of the pioneers in in global weather modeling. And so... Basically, the U.S. models say, this is how you build a weather model. And then the Europeans said, we're going to make it a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And we're going to kind of make the physics and the and the terrain, and we're going to do these little things. And uh, they will then make little tweaks. So every year, the computer models are tweaked a little bit. Sometimes the tweaks help. Sometimes they don't. So it's kind of like... Um, It's kind of like three houses. All the houses have roof, windows, and doors, and a kitchen, and a bathroom, and a bedroom. But each house is built a little differently. And that's kind of the best way to describe Mm -hmm. why the models come up with different solutions.
0: Okay. All right. Well, I've always wondered that because you always talk about the models and that's always a question I wanted you to explain to me at some point. Well, stay with us. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with meteorologist Don Day as we're going to look at the very extended forecast. We're going to be looking at winter, first part of winter, second part of winter and the spring of 2022. We'll be back with more on the Working Ranch Radio Show.
2: Payday starts with superior Beefmaster cows. Yes, the Beefmaster female has stayed true to her original purpose, to help ranchers in tough environments improve performance, survivability, and longevity. So if you're giving up ground in traits that matter, consider Beefmasters. The breed will jumpstart your cattle and give your next calf crop a performance boost. Nothing beats a Beefmaster. Learn more about what the Beefmaster cow can do for your herd at Beefmasters.org.
0: Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm your host, Justin Mills, and my guest today is meteorologist Don Day out of Cheyenne, Wyoming. By the way, if you'd like to find out more information, you can go to his website at dayweather.com. But Don, uh, a question that I had during the break here, when you talked about the 10 to 11-year cycles in between those, we also have some droughty years and, and are those more regional or is there something that's tied to those? Cause I can think back, like, for example, here in the Northern Rockies and why, you know, Wyoming where I'm located at. I think it was 2017 that we had a pretty dry year as well. And of course, that would match up with the solar cycle uh, and the La Nina pattern that we were talking about briefly. But what is what's what would you diagnose those in the middle of these solar cycle droughts? What's causing those?
1: Okay, that's a good question. You still have La Nina's and you still have El Nino's during the whole course of 11-year solar cycle. So they, they alternate kind of back and forth. So 2017 was indeed a La Nina year, but it only lasted, I think, about eight or nine months. And then we cycled back into a, a more wet pattern in 2018 and then that 2019 year that I brought up. So what tends to happen is, yes, you're going to have those cycles, but the important thing to point out is that the La Ninias are more intense during the solar minimum. So that's when, they, when the solar cycles and the Pacific cycles sync up is when we have these really bad dry periods. So you have to remember that we're going to have wet summers and springs and dry summers and springs, but the ones that we tend to remember, they tend to be a year or less, mm-hmm. as opposed to these two-year periods of drought that have been happening about every 10 years or so.
0: Um, Let's get now into some forecasting. And you had mentioned that you're kind of getting in the position now to where you feel a little bit more comfortable about looking at the winter. And we'll break it up here into two halves. And so as you look ahead for our winter outlook, what do you see in the first half of winter across the country?
1: Well, it looks like uh, without a doubt, we're getting more and more confident that we're going to see La Nina kind of have a bit of a comeback. As we get into uh, the last three months of this year, so a La Nina status is likely going to be in effect, which means it is likely going to be a warmer than normal start to winter. So, if we were to look from September to December, it looks like most of the nation will be warmer than normal. You know that doesn't mean there won't be cold fronts and snow of storms, but mm-hmm. it does look like on average that time frame is going to be a bit warmer than average, and we're unfortunately. Um, likely going to keep drier than normal conditions, at least at the beginning of winter uh, in the west, parts of the Pacific Northwest. But we are seeing a tendency in the long-range weather modeling that shows the La Nina is going to be weakening in around the January, February timeframe. And this is potentially really good news because that will likely mean that as we get into maybe as early as March, more likely April or May that La Nina will go away, and we're going to see that Pacific area near the equator start to warm up again, and hopefully we'll be in into a, maybe a weak El Nino situation. And we're encouraged that the, the the weather modeling is seeing that, Justin, because going back to these solar cycles and these and these uh, these cycles that we see in the Pacific
0: mm-hmm.
1: with La Nina and El Nino is historically speaking, after a two year La Nina that we see during these solar minimums that can be so intense, you usually spring back into a weak El Nino status the following two years. So, as we go into spring 2022 into the next coin season of 2023, using both the, the modeling and those cycles, it does look like we are going to have a better precipitation pattern for spring summer of 2022 as compared to the last two summers, especially in the very dry areas of the West. This would include the Pacific Northwest as well. I think the Pacific Northwest this winter, including even central and northern California during the second half of winter could do quite well with mountain Mm -hmm. snow and, and some rain. So that's good news. So when you see the modeling matching up with that analog forecasting technique that gives you more confidence as opposed to just looking at the models. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm somewhat bullish that we are, we've are. we seen the darkest of the days with the drought in the West. We've got a few more months to get through, but things do look better for next year.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So you've addressed the first half. Now let's look at the second half of winter and what you're seeing with that.
1: Well, it does look like while the first half of the winter is going to be warmer than normal, We could end up with some really cold months, Uh, January and February in particular. um, Going back and looking at similar years, uh, you can have quite the cold outbreaks when we start to see this transition out of La Nina. Um, So I would expect that uh, the first three months of 2022 for a good portion of the nation, Mm -hmm. especially the central United States, could have some really cold weather. Now, we had some cold weather last winter, especially in February, but it wasn't prolonged. Yeah. Uh, But the second half of the winter could end up colder.
0: Mm -hmm. So, and you've already talked a little bit that we could start to see a weak El Nino in the spring. Any other spring forecast that you're looking at?
1: If we are able to see that weak El Nino form or at least completely get rid of this La Nina, that bodes well for the western and central United States to turn wet at least wetter than it's been the last two springs it's really critical that we get rid of la nina by spring because uh for a lot of the nation the wettest months of the year usually start in march and go through june uh that's not true everywhere but in most areas of the united states so if we can see that that shift from la nina to el nino then Uh, That does bode well for a better water year. Now, different parts of the country will have different conditions for the southeastern United States, which has been so cool and wet this year. uh, It does mean probably a little bit of a warmer weather pattern for them uh, in the summer of 2022. That will likely change things for that part of the U.S. as well.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Meteorologist Don Day is my guest today. We're going to take a break here, and when we come back for our final segment, a look at the 10- to 14-day weather outlook across the country when we return on the Working Ranch Radio Show.
2: How would you like an easier way to organize and manage your ranch records? It's easy with CattleMax, the software for people who raise cattle. Cattle CattleMax brings
1: all your ranch records together in one place, Manage your cattle data, including health treatments, breeding, and calving. Ranch records such as equipment inventory and maintenance. Income
0: and expenses. It works for any size herd. See how easy it is to manage your ranch records. Start free now at CattleMax.com. Welcome back to the Working Ranch Radio Show. I'm your host, Justin Mills, and my guest this week for our feature topic as we talk about weather is meteorologist Don Day out of Cheyenne, Wyoming. And now, Don, we've talked uh, a lot of other things about weather, but I think before we leave here on our program today, let's talk a little bit about the 10 to 14-day weather outlook across the country.
1: Well, there's good news for some folks, especially true for Minnesota, uh, parts of the northern plains, Wisconsin, parts of Iowa, the eastern Dakotas, and all the way back across portions of Montana, there's going to be a, a really active rain pattern across that northern tier. Um, you know, if there's two areas in the nation that are really suffering the worst drought conditions right now, it would be parts of those northern plains around that Minnesota area then back on the west coast. So that area is going to get some rain, and we're going to see a very hot humid pattern for the south and central areas of the united states and a pattern very favorable for more tropical activity in fact we're probably going to see east texas or louisiana tropical storm or hurricane and then maybe something affecting the southeastern united states about a week later the pattern is going to be very favorable for an uptick in tropical storm and hurricane activity for the drought parched areas of washington and oregon and, and california unfortunately The next week, two weeks, there's just not much that's going to be able to come in to help those areas. But longer term, as we get deeper into September, I do think uh, California and Oregon and Washington will finally get some help.
0: All right. Well, Don, I do thank you for joining us here on the Working Ranch Radio Show with some very practical knowledge and information to help us in understanding weather and weather patterns. I think that is a a big piece of information right there, folks, that if we can understand weather patterns, I think it'll help us as we try to manage our ranching operations going forward. But, Don, again, thanks for joining us here on the Working Ranch Radio Show.
1: Thanks for having
0: me. And again, that's meteorologist Don Day, our featured guest today on the Working Ranch Radio Show. And if you want to catch his daily video podcast as it kicks out every morning, Monday through Friday, there's a link to that on his website to get to the YouTube channel. His website is dayweather.com. I'd like to thank my guest that joined us earlier in the program, Jana Jensen with the Paulus Ranch out of the Sand Hills of Nebraska, as she helped us out uh, to give us a little bit more uh, about the Galvate Balancer breed. As that was there in our breed spotlight today for our program, also a thank you to the captain, Tim O'Byrne, publisher and editor of Working Ranch Magazine. I'd like to thank the sponsors of Working Ranch Radio Show, the American Simmental Association, Heterosis Works, which is why with Simmental, it's more per head Period. Find out more at cemental.org Performance Beef, easy to use. Cattle management software. Find Performance Beef online to request a demo. Gelvey Balancer, the smart, reliable, and profitable choice. For more information, go to Gelvey.org. Well, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can do it by calling or texting the studio. If you have a question or topic you'd like us to cover, please feel free to give me a holler at 307-363-COWS, or you can shoot me an email at justin.workingranch.com at gmail.com. Be sure to join us next week as we're going to be talking the feedlot business as Trista Brown Priest with Cattle Empire out of Santana, Kansas will be joining us as our featured guest next week on the Working Ranch Radio Show. This is a production of Working Ranch Magazine. Join us each Saturday right here at 12 noon Eastern on Rural Radio Channel 147 Sirius XM or on your podcast provider. Thanks again for joining me. I'm your host, Justin Mills. And until next time, keep your head down and your mind in the middle. So long.